Alrighty then. This is Come Follow Me 43, Timothy 1 and 2, Titus and Philemon, which we already dealt with, so we're leaving that one behind. And we got three books of Scripture to deal with this week. And if you don't mind, I'll start with the third. And there's a reason for this. Um, so we'll start with Titus. And Titus is one of Paul's protégés. The setting here is he's been left behind in Crete to organize and put in order the branches there. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that is in accordance with godliness. Pretty standard, pretty standard opening. Verse 2. In the hope of eternal life that God who never lies promised before the ages began. This phrase, God who never lies. I mean, this is going to be a deliberate contrast with the Cretans, as we will see. But, but he's opening knowing that he's going to tell us about Cretans that they're liars, right? Okay. So verse 3. In due time, he revealed his word through the proclamation with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Oh, God our Savior. This is going to be an interesting phrase. Um, God our Savior. We, we normally think about Jesus as the Savior. Paul doesn't mean Jesus, as we'll see in some other examples. Um, he, he means God the Father as the Savior. That's not the way we normally think about it, but this is how he's using it for reasons that I think we'll talk about later when there's a little bit oh, different setting here. Uh, let's see. Um, and, and now verse 4. To Titus, my loyal child, in the faith we share, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Actually, this is not a bad time to talk about it. <laughs> so he just called God uh, the Savior, and then he calls God the Father, and then Jesus Christ the Savior. Um, why? How, how can that be? This this is not the, the way that we're used to talking about this. Um, well, I think there's a couple ways to think of it. And um, and Paul's going to do this a bunch of times in these uh, pastoral letters. This, these are called the pastoral letters. Um, they're just like teaching you how to be, teaching Paul, or teaching Timothy and Titus how to be pastors, bishops, uh, governors in the church. Right? Um, so, we, um, uh, number one, we could say, well, Jesus is God. Um, okay, that, and that is true. We reject that he's the Father, but he was the God of the Old Testament, right? He's the one that interacted with uh, people in the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, in person, in, in uh, physical life, and in Revelation afterwards. He's the God of the Book of Mormon, and he's the one that reveals and speaks in the Doctrine and Covenant. So uh, if he's not God, I don't know what is God, right? Uh, right. And in fact, there's very, very few instances of the father actually interacting with his spirit children. He's kind of a, an absentee dad in some, well, it can seem like that. It can seem like that. But, but clearly, big brother's in charge, right? Um, now, <clears throat> if you accept the opinion of the ancient Christians, then Heavenly Mother really is kind of the great constant. She's the one that's always with us um, in, in our business in the biggest way and, and almost totally unrecognized. But how, how else can we think of, of God the Father as the Savior? Well, we have Jude one twenty five, All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, uh, so Heavenly Father is the Savior acting through Jesus Christ. He saves us. Hebrews could be useful here. It portrays God as the as uh, God the Father as the Savior of Jesus. That's an interesting way to think about it. So this is Hebrews five seven. God had the power to save Jesus from death, 
And while Jesus was on earth, he begged God with loud crying and tears to save him. He truly worshipped God, and God listened to his prayers. So there's a couple ways to think about this. None of these, I think, are particularly objectionable. I don't see any reason to, to have to really navigate around what Paul is saying here. God the Savior, and Jesus Christ also the Savior, or through Jesus Christ. All right, verse 5. I left you behind in Crete for this reason, that you should put in order what remained to be done and should appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Someone who is blameless, married once. Uh, now, this, this is how NRSV has it. Um, K- King James says, the, as I recollect, the husband of one wife, uh, meaning he can't be a bigamist or something like that, right? Uh, no, I, I don't really think that's what's being said here at all. Um, the, the, the meaning of these words is greatly disputed, but the New English translation uh, offers what I think is the most um, the most convincing, and that is devoted only, that's where the one, only, devoted only to his wife, meaning he doesn't have a mistress, etc., like that, right? Uh, I, I think, you know, married only once, that doesn't make any sense. There's nothing else like that in the whole New Testament. Um, and, uh, you know, the husband of one wife, that, that kind of comes out of nowhere. Were there Christians that were uh, polygamous in that time frame? It doesn't seem like it. Um, so devoted only to his wife makes better sense. And we might as well, you know, kind of say that now because it's going to apply a couple of the places in these letters. Okay. Uh, so carrying on with verse 6, someone who is blameless. Oh, and remember, this, we're talking about elders, right? He says, I want you to appoint elders. Here's the criteria. Someone who is blameless, married only once, or devoted only to his wife, whose children are believers, not accused of debauchery, and not rebellious. For a bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless. So, uh, obviously, a bishop is an elder, right? So, so carrying on with verse 7. He must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or addicted to wine or violent or greedy for gain. But he must be hospitable a lover of goodness, prudent, upright, devout, and self-controlled. He must have a firm grasp of the word that is trustworthy in accordance with the teachings, so that he may be able to both teach with sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. Okay, so a bishop's got to be righteous. Uh, He's got to know the gospel so he can teach and defend it. And, uh, well, I mean, everyone falls short. Nobody's perfect. Um, this is this is the ideal that we're striving for. It's not, uh, you know, they must be perfect. Um, okay, we have no bishops then. <laughs> um, but thankfully, uh, I, I would fail as a candidate for a bishop. Uh, there's, there's the matter of only having been married once. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, verse 10. There are also many rebellious people, idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, i.e. the Jews. Verse 11. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for sordid gain what is not right to teach. Well, and, and maybe this is easy for me to say, um, that books and music and art um, that, that ought, to be, ought to be given out for free. That's kind of the feeling of my heart anyway. Okay, and I admit that that's impractical, right? But... There are lots of examples of this, right? Scholars who publish with the Interpreter Foundation, they all get nothing for it. And how, how do they do it? Well, they're teachers and professors, or you know, they do other things for a living. They do something else for a living. Um, Anthony Sweat uh, 
is is well. This is an artist that I that I really like. He's done some really lovely paintings of important and long neglected moments in church history, and and he just put them out there for everyone to see and to learn from. I mean, this was his, his labor of love, right? Um, others do this kind of thing with art and music, um, where they maybe this is maybe this is their livelihood, but they don't just rely on Latter Day Saint themes and Latter-day Saint sales and religious appeal, right? Um, tours of church history sites in the Holy Land. It, my heart says they should be given at cost plus maybe an hourly wage for the people that are doing it, right? I mean, but not for maximal profit. And so there's something in me that, that rejects the way that that business is carried forth, right? Religious music, how can, how can they be sold, right? There's too much taint of mammon in that. Well, that's the purest in me speaking. That's the, that's the part of me that uh, yearns for Zion. And by the way, this, that same part of me lives every day with a pang, this, uh, this sense that, um, that the bumbling but ever so sacred art of healing ought to always be a free gift of love. Right? That, uh, that talking with people about their greatest trials, their sorrows and their fears, and their physical pain and sickness and declining health and the ways that their mind and body and family and everything is failing them, right? These, these painful, sacred discussions, uh, are, they're cheapened, I guess, by, the, by collecting a fee. I mean, there's part of me that just feels that and, and yearns, yearns for Zion, yearns for the day that we'll all labor for Zion and not for money. Uh, well, I mean, that's maybe a bit far afield, um, from Paul here, uh, well, he's talking about preaching for money, right? And and there, I think there's a special danger of corruption. Uh, he'll say later that uh, that people people are paying for the kind of preachers that they that are saying the things they want to hear. That's the danger, right? Verse twelve is just so delicious. Um, it was one of them. So, okay, we come back to Paul here. He's he's giving Titus instructions on how to organize all the branches in Crete, that island in the middle of the of the Mediterranean, right? And he says, it was one of them, i.e. the Cretans, right? Their very own prophet who said, Cretans are always liars, vicious brutes, lazy gluttons. That testimony is true. And I'm not kidding you. This is what Paul says. Okay. Now, Paul's a smart guy. He, he knows what he's saying here. He, not the Cretan Christians are rotten, okay? Uh, I mean... The whole reason Titus is there is because there's branches in all these cities across Crete, right? Um, and and where was where was Titus going to get any bishops if they weren't upright people, right? <laughs> right. Um, and, oh, and by the way, there were Cretans speaking in tongues at Pentecost, right? So so what can Paul possibly mean? Well, as we've said um, several times before, Paul knows his Greek philosophy. We've seen him quoting poets and philosophers a lot. And here he is referring to Epimenides' paradox. Epimenides' paradox. Okay. This is a semantical paradox. Um, and you know, associated with, with Epimenides, who was from Crete, okay, uh, about 700 years BC, somewhere around there. And, and this paradox occurs when someone says, I am lying. Okay? They say, I am lying. Which, if you think about it, it's a true statement if it's false, <laughs> right? And it's a false statement if it's true. See how cool that is? Epimenides' paradox. Right? So if all Cretans are liars, then Epimenides 
was also a liar. If Epimenides was a liar, then the statement that all Cretans are liars must be a lie, which would mean that all Cretans tell the truth. Which means Epimenides tells the truth, which means the statement all Cretans are liars is both true and false. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, I think it would be fun, uh, well, maybe it's nothing more than fun, to, to dig into what Epimenides really is trying to say here. This is this is what he's quoted as saying. Um, they fashioned a tomb for you. He's addressing Zeus. Um, there's a famous uh, famous tomb on the island of Crete, uh, a tomb of Zeus. And you think, well, a tomb of Zeus? Zeus is an immortal god. Why does he have a tomb? Yeah, here goes Epimenides. They fashioned a tomb for you, high and holy one. Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. So Epimenides is saying, well, they have, the Cretans have this tomb for you. He's a Cretan. But it's a lie. You were never mortal. And by the way, did you notice this additional quote from Epimenides that Paul gives us? Right, In, in you we live and move and have our being. Paul says this. Paul quotes this. Um, when he's preaching on Mars Hill. So Paul really kind of seems to know his stuff here. So, so this is all that he's kind of invoking as he says, Cretans are liars, they're lazy, gluttons, blah, blah, blah. Right. He's invoking this Epimenides uh, thing, which was obviously part of, the, part of the vocabulary of the day. Back to Paul. For this reason, rebuke them sharply, so that they may become sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths or to commandments of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciousness are corrupted. They profess to know God, but they deny Him in their actions. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, before you think that He hates them all, just remember, <laughs> he's, he's trying to call out what's bad and praise what's good and encourage people to go to the good sign, right? All right. And, and Paul's certainly not uh, above using hyperbole. Chapter 2. But as for you, teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. Tell the older men to be temperate, serious, prudent, and sound in faith and love and in endurance. Likewise, tell the older women to be reverent in behavior, not to be slanderers or slaves to drink. They are to teach what is good. Okay, remember this. They are to teach what is good. Um, okay, verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, chaste, good managers of the household, kind, being submissive to their husbands, so that the word of God may not be discredited. So again, when we talked about um, slavery and other things like this, this is again, Paul purposely operating within the accepted Roman family order. Why? So that the word of God, the mission, the, the church, may not be discredited. That's a fight that they don't want to have to fight. It's a, it's a fight enough to proclaim the gospel. We're not going to abolish slavery. We're not going to up, upend the, the family order. And, and for all we know, this is Paul's genuine thoughts, right? Even though we have a different understanding of it today. Likewise, urge the, this is verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, 
Show yourself in all respects a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, gravity, and sound speech that cannot be censured. Then any opponent will be put to shame, having nothing evil to say of us. See, again, this is all about we need the reputation of the church. We don't, we're sick and tired of like Corianton uh, running off after the har- harlot Isabel, and then no one will believe my words when they saw your behavior, right? So this kind of thing. Nine, tell slaves to be submissive to their masters and to give satisfaction in every respect. They're not to answer back, not to pilfer, that means to steal, but to show complete and perfect fidelity so that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He it is who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Declare these things. Exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one look down on you. Now, um, I think it would be inconsistent with all the rest of Paul's writings for us to take this as saying, Titus, stick up for yourself and shout down or cancel anyone that belittles you. Right? No, I think it's simply for... Titus to, to recognize that he's a valid minister to old and young, and even though you know, even though he's young himself, right? And and this is just what we tell our missionaries today, right? I mean, we send them out and we tell them, in effect, um, you don't know anything, uh, really, uh, <laughs> but it's not about you. The message is the truth, and it will speak for itself, or or better yet, the Holy Spirit will speak for the message and establish your words in the hearts of your hearers if you'll, you know, do your do your part for it. So get out there and talk with kings and presidents if you can. The same as with fishermen and bums and whatever, right? You don't need to feel looked down on by anyone. So that's, this is the way I see it. You don't need to feel looked down on. Okay. Chapter three, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show every courtesy to everyone. See, Paul Paul wants us to live a peaceable life. He wants Christians to be known for this. Can you can you hear him hammering this again and again and again? And the same is exactly true for us, right? Um, of course, we have a few advantages here in this business about uh, being subject to rulers and authorities, right? Uh, th- think about how um, how remote the emperor was to uh, to Paul, right? Uh, and to ordinary well, citizens, but even more so to subjects of the Roman Empire. Uh, these things were light years away from them, right? I mean, choosing a new emperor, the intrigues and murders that were the commonplace, you know, way to choose emperors by that time. Uh, and, and so they, they very sensibly left such matters to God, <laughs> right? Knowing that they had no ability to engage with them. So they just kind of, okay, God, God will take care of that. Let's take care of living a peaceable life here and... Uh, and not causing trouble for the work, right? Now, that's not to say that Paul didn't have the courage to fight for righteousness. He obviously did. And this, of course, gets him in trouble, right? Um, but he has the discernment to know what's not going to be in his power to change. And the blessing to be at peace with those things that he knows he's not going to be able to change, right? Uh, kind of a, uh, kind of an 
ancient serenity kind of thing. Well, it's different for us. We, we have a voice. Okay, one voice among so many, but we have a voice in the government. And, uh, and, and we rightly consider that if the wicked rule, not only do the people suffer, <laughs> but the people bear some of the burden for that suffering, right? Uh, and, and this doesn't just, this doesn't mean that we should not live peaceably and quietly. We should. But there is an extra duty for us to uphold righteousness, not just in private life, but in public life too, because we have that power that they couldn't even have imagined, right? So we have a duty to uphold righteousness in public life. All right. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior, here it is again, God our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, so again, it's God, our Savior, and then Jesus Christ, our Savior. And, and, and of course, then the Holy Spirit, like a substance poured out, not like a person in this, in this image, right? Verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is sure. So, so again, we have some impersonal language about um, about the Holy Spirit. And so you can see why Parley Pratt and others in the Restoration uh, didn't, didn't even know into the 1870s almost that, uh, that the Holy Spirit was a person, right? They were writing of it as a substance or a fluid, right? The same way that Lectures on Faith, number five, uh, has, has the Holy Spirit not as a person, but, a, but as the shared mind of Father and Son. This is why we've, we've rejected the Lectures on Faith, which, by the way, was not written by... Joseph Smith. It's Sidney Ringland, 100% all the way. Okay. But so here in Paul, the Holy Spirit is poured out on us. And yet, and yet, that's what makes us heirs. Kleronomoi. Uh, the Kleronomoi heirs is the word that Jesus used to describe himself, for example, in the parable of the wicked husbandman, right? Um, and then Paul more typically uses the combination of sons and heirs to make sure we get. That um, that we're children of God, not just in a figural, figurative sense, like uh, Father T. Farnsworth is the father of television. Right? So uh, the Holy Spirit being key in making us sons and daughters of God, I think, is important. So um, carrying on with what is this? Verse eight. This is verse eight. I desire that you insist on these things. Insist on them. Like uh, you're, you're going to be in charge. You got to kind of make sure that this is uh, these things are straight. I desire that you insist on these things so that those who have come to believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. But avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, um, Paul doesn't like genealogy. Uh, no, uh, obviously the scriptures contain a lot of genealogies. They're not worthless. Uh, there, there was clearly something else at play here among the Jews, right? Something, we, and we don't know what this is, something that overemphasized or distorted genealogy. Uh, it, it's, it's not hard to imagine that people maintain their own genealogy to 
to look superior, especially as lots of um, lots of Gentiles are coming to the church as a possibility. But we don't know. We don't know. Some people will say that this is this is a Gnostic kind of angelology. I don't buy that. Uh, that they, they didn't really care, especially about genealogy. And I've read everything associated with them. So. So it's something that's been lost to time, this genealogy thing. Oh, and I like this word, stupid. <laughs> um, the, the word is moras, uh, it's, and, and it's like our word moron or moronic, right? Um, so it's not, um, it's not just ill-advised controversies. It's kind of like anyone with sense knows this is dumb uh, kind of controversies, right? It's more, these are moronic controversies. You know, you can pull, pull in his hair out. Uh, so verse 10. After a first and second admonition, have nothing more to do with anyone who causes divisions, since you know that such a person is perverted and sinful, being self-condemned. When I sent Artemis to you, or Tuchikos, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Make every effort to send Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, and see that they lack nothing, and let people learn to devote themselves to good works in order to meet urgent needs." so that they may not be unproductive. I assume that that means, um, uh, you know, like fast driving, being able to fill the gap of, of other people that are suddenly in want unexpectedly, right? 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. We'll go next to First Timothy, and we'll just make it a section B. 